Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain-related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guest today is Bill Hughes at Bill Hughes DC on Twitter. Bill is Senior Counsel and Director of Global Regulatory Matters at Consensus Software, which is the team behind MetaMask, Infura, and various other software supporting the programmable blockchain ecosystem. Bill focuses on the diverse and ever-evolving crypto global regulatory landscape and the legal and public policy issues with which consensus, consensus and the broader crypto ecosystem is grappling. Bill joined Consensus after serving as an Associate Deputy Attorney General at the Department of Justice. Bill also has served at the White House, where he oversaw various operational components. We'll be talking about Bill's Genesis block, money crypto versus tech crypto, the library decision, biggest policy challenges, sanctions, as well as the peril of private keys, a comment letter he recently wrote to the U.S. Treasury. So this should be a fun one. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. It is a pleasure to be with you. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I think it does a lot of good. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, thank you. And all the credit goes to people like you for being willing to have these conversations and really talk through important issues. And in terms of issues, there's we're recording this on November 11th, 2022, and this past week has been full of issues. We, we've had a lot to cover. So given your experience and your role on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being full-on panic, where would you rate the state of crypto regulatory adv- regulatory advocacy at this moment? Well, prior to Tuesday, I'd say it was at a five and headed and getting better. So it was headed toward 10. And I can explain why. The quick and unexpected and undeniable implosion of FTX and all of its ramifications, that I don't think that changes my number. I think that um, because I differentiate how sophisticated this ecosystem is becoming in the regulatory conversation from the circumstances in which that discussion is being taking place. So I think there are a lot of problems for our advocacy, a lot of obstacles that this FTX debacle presents, but it also presents us, I think, some very powerful opportunities to make big macro points that need to be made that are very important for us to be able to communicate and persuade on for the regulatory picture to to get where it needs to be to have a vibrant, robust, um, accessible ecosystem. 
And what are some of those macro points that we can touch on? That I don't consider FTX crypto in the sense that they're a centralized exchange. It was an it was the situation that we appear to have before us is an offshore centralized exchange that allowed people to trade tokens, allowed people to use margin, and also had a not too secret but not very transparent relationship with a hedge fund that apparently included, at least in recent history, some transactions which left the exchange utterly incapable of covering their customer deposits to repay their customers who had money in their accounts. We have seen such, we have seen similar instances in TradFi, and there are a lot of rules across a lot of different areas of the traditional finance space that are designed to prevent use of customer funds other than for very explicit purposes or other than 100% with 100% transparency. And so we have CFI, which is by far in terms of economic mass, the biggest part of crypto undeniably. And it is also undeniable that one of the best use cases for crypto is that they've gone up in value, that they have been certainly an investable asset class. But to make any mistake that is all that they are should be something that none of your listeners or anybody in the space that makes the when i think of crypto i think the heart of it is a peer-to-peer computer network where nobody's in charge anybody can participate and you can make on it what you want and so obviously I'm primarily talking about the programmable space where it is, it's just white space. You can write a computer program that as long as it plays by the rules of the network itself can pretty much do anything you want. And anybody will be able to access it if they pay their way. And sometimes that software intermediates between two different people using two different addresses. Sometimes the software itself, a lot of the time, the software itself is the counterparty. Like you're using the code to execute a transaction. There's really not explicitly anybody on the other side. It's this peer-to-peer space, which has nothing to do with what happened with FTX. And so I I think this is a great opportunity to highlight, and you can already see people on Twitter and in other spaces do it, highlight the important distinction between the investment space around crypto And then the actual technology space, which is trying to create these new networks and make them more usable, more accessible, cheaper, faster, et cetera. So at Consensus, we have MetaMask, we have Infura, we have a hundred different projects going on. Like we are not in the business of, of price go up and to the right. We're in the business of making tools and making useful things for both users and developers. We luckily are not impacted by this as far as we can tell. And we will continue building just like we do in bull markets, just like we do in bear markets, because that's the side of crypto. We're in tech crypto. And so we gotta be smarter in our advocacy to better distinguish between the two. And I'm not saying, just like I said in my op-ed I wrote earlier this and published earlier this week with Coindesk, we're like literally the evening before FTX imploded. but. Money crypto, I'm not saying it's wrong, it's bad. I'm just saying it is what it is, and tech crypto is what tech crypto is. And they have a symbiotic symbiotic relationship, 
but we need to recognize that these are in many respects, two different things. And look, regulators and people on Capitol Hill are not dumb. Their staff are not dumb generally. And they understand, I mean, they like, they, they understand that it's a diverse ecosystem. They understand because they have talked to many players in the space, both on the money crypto side and tech crypto side, that there's a lot here that's being and substantive and promising. There are, there are those that just hate crypto and will use this as another cudgel to say it's all bad, which is fine. We're not going to change their minds really anyways. But, and the last point I'll make on this is like, there have been Bernie Madoffs. There have been the guys who are, who are responsible for MF Global. Like those are Goldman Sachs partners, if memory serves. These are what they had been unimpeachably respected at the heights of their professions. They had status in the community as being like honorable and successful. And they turned out to have committed like really serious crimes. And it's not like we think now every investment banker is Bernie Madoff. I mean, some people in crypto, I'm sure do. But I think the average person recognizes that Bernie Madoff is is Bernie Madoff for a reason. And it's not everybody. And I so to the extent that SBF is becoming this Bernie Madoff type character, I think people, it doesn't take a lot of sophistication to recognize that what he did, what FTX did, what Alameda did doesn't by necessity have to reflect one for one what the entire space is. And so I think a lot of the anxiety that you see being played out this week will slowly die off as we start to recognize those things. Yeah, I think so as well. And if you look over the past year at all the implosions we've seen, it goes mm. CFI to CFI to CFI. And you don't see a DeFi protocol imploding to the extent mm -hmm. that it truly is a DeFi protocol because they moved user funds in some way. It just, it doesn't happen. That's right. And I mean, that doesn't mean that the blockchain space doesn't have its risks, right? Like the on-chain layer one protocol or, or application space doesn't have its risk. It does have its risk. And we can talk about those. But those are different risks and not all of them are created equal. Like some of them of these protocols are very centralized, like all the nodes or the majority of the nodes that actually maintain the network are like operated literally by one entity or one person. We won't be naming names, but and some of them break all the time. Right. So there's lots of risks, but these are separate problems. The problems that have captured attention that have literally been running nonstop on CNBC, which I just think is wild. They used to not talk about crypto at all. It is wall-to-wall -wall coverage, crypto, on CNBC all day today, which is just, look look at us. Look at us. We're on CNBC. I love that meme. But the, but the point is that it, it is not by accident that it's the money side of crypto, which is tripping over its own shoelaces, that these centralized entities that, that are the subject of potential regulation, but that regulation is yet to either be fully articulated or yet to be implemented, like in the case of Europe. So, I mean, we know the problem is kind of obvious and I'm sure steps will be taken to start to address it. Yeah. And you mentioned things like Bernie Madoff, Enron. And after that happened, people didn't sit around and think, oh, should we just eliminate securities 
at large, right? I've had yeah. people text me crypto done and it's like, this isn't crypto, right? This is an exchange just like the Toronto Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, etc. Mm-hmm. are exchanges and they're subject to the whims of the people who govern them and run them and who have yeah. insider information and who act according to what they think is best as opposed to a system like DeFi systems where you have this trustless smart contract, you have this trustless software protocol that can run autonomously and isn't subject to whims. Obviously, it can be. Well, a lot of them are. You know that, right? Right. right. Okay. And, and, yeah, and that's the thing, right? It's like, I think there's an ideal that right. we're looking towards, just like anything, right? When they first created cars, they didn't work the same way they do today. Yeah, no, that's true. And my point about not to be a smart aleck about smart contracts, but a lot of them are maintained, right? Like they're not immutable. And there are reasons why they shouldn't be immutable for that particular application. And so this and and this is why I want I think this is an opportunity for all of us who engage in this regulatory discussion to actually be to start to be more purposeful and specific about what we're talking about and be more candid Mm -hmm. about what Mm -hmm. we're talking about. Crypto is the best thing about crypto by far is the memes, but in some to some extent, and if you don't agree with that, you haven't been in crypto long enough. But the, or the, on the one, the, yeah, exactly. I'm on this week, especially on way too much Twitter, way too much Twitter. But the thing I, but I love the funny memes, the crypto Twitter memes. I hate memes in policy discussions, and I think one of my complaints is that far too much of the regulatory discussion is just sort of regurgitating memes. And they're they're just very paper thin arguments that have very weak, if any, reasoning underneath it. And so I've been very lucky to be a consensus to be able to spend a lot of my time trying to think deeply about this stuff and being more comfortable about being a little bit more self-critical about different aspects of like the peer-to-peer environment, the way you like think about or recognize or talk about risks in different areas where we're not used to talking about it. And so again, the FTX blowing up, I think the biggest thing to keep in mind is this dichotomy between a centralized, intermediated, investment-focused crypto which is very much something that looks, it was very much looks like traditional finance in many respects, except not under an investor protection umbrella like traditional finance. I'd love to just take a step back and talk a bit sure. more about your introduction to Bitcoin, as well as your role and the job at Consensus and why you joined. And then we'll get sure. into really the weeds of money crypto versus tech crypto, because I think it is an important distinction that is so different when you think about the traditional finance and the role that it plays in crypto versus the tech and the peer-to-peer and the peer-to-contract mm-hmm. that we're seeing built out. But before we get there, what was your genesis block? Where were you first introduced to Bitcoin and what were your initial thoughts? Well, I remember seeing an article about Bitcoin like at the tail end of like a Forbes magazine or Fortune magazine and the early 2010s when I was still up in New York. And I remember like maybe reading three sentences of it and then flipping the page. (laughs) I then remember being at the beach in 2017. It was August. And my brother-in-law, who's a very smart person, was researching cryptocurrencies. And I was like, why the heck is he doing that? And his boss, who was a very smart guy, asked him to do it, which intrigued me. And having some more conversations and doing some more research, I just fell down this bottomless rabbit hole. So I was, I left the law firm in early 2017. And so I had like 
a government job, you actually have free time. So I spent a lot of my evenings and nights just staying up learning about it. And I experienced the euphoric highs and self-confirming genius moves of like a raging bull market in 2017. And then after failing to convince my family of buying the t to buy the top, I experienced what crypto winner is like. And so I've like, like the average uh, person who's been in this space for a while, these price moves don't really get my heart racing. I, w I was at DOJ doing a, so at the White House, I basically oversaw a, a 300 person organization that did a lot of the operational backbone stuff of the White House. I worked for, I was asked to join quite unexpectedly by a, men a quasi mentor and a good friend of mine who was asked to serve quite unexpectedly. And uh, I said, yes, sure. And I had a pretty good time. It was, it's always an honor to work at any White House. And I got to work a lot with the Secret Service and the White House military office and the folks in my organization, they're good, hardworking public servants and care very much about the institution of the presidency. And so it was something that I found incredibly valuable. On that, yeah. I just love to hear, given your time at the White House, and I'm sure you had some presuppositions of what that would look like. What was the most surprising thing or what do people get wrong when they think about working at the White House? It was my second time working at the White House. I worked at the Bush administration when I was like, even before law school. So okay. uh, I did advance though. So I traveled a lot and the 18 acres was less, I would go into the office, but I didn't really have all that much to do. This job was very much focused on the White House complex itself and some other facilities that will be remain, that will remain nameless. The biggest how bureaucratic the operation of the White House is, like just from a logistics standpoint, is amazing. Like the grounds around the White House are all owned by the National Park Service. Like you cannot do anything on the south lawn of the White House without the parks, the Park Service saying okay. And if you do something to like, like the grass is all chewed up after the Easter egg roll, the Park Service has to agree to resod it. Yeah, I mean, they eventually do, but they need the money. And we can't like, it's the president. It's not the Congress and it's not the Fed. We can't just make our own money. So you got to stay under budget. You got to you gotta talk to the right agency. The building itself, the West Wing. Who owns the West Wing? It's GSA. And so if something needs to be fixed, GSA needs to be called and they need to spec it out. The West Wing is crumbling. Like it was one of our goals to like demolish it and rebuild it. The problem is you got to find a president who doesn't want to use the West Wing for 14 months. And we thought President Trump would probably be that character. He would just be happy to work out of Mar-a-Lago or, or New Jersey. But nobody wants to leave the White House and not use the West Wing for 14 months. That thing is old and it is crumbling. Looking behind the walls in the West Wing is some scary stuff. But what else? Maybe that's enough. It's just, it's a fascinating place. It has its own, there are people that have worked there for decades and decades. Mm -hmm. And just like any place else, like once you work on the inside, a lot of the mystique like disappears right. Right. and it gets a lot more pedestrian, but it's still, I mean, come on. It's still, there were, there were times just being there. I'm sure every White House staffer experiences this. Like you feel very lucky to even be able to like walk around. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. I'm sure it, it feels like the center of the universe in many, many instances. And so in good way, in good ways and bad, I guess, <laughs> right, right, depending on the climate. Okay, so you were sorry for interrupting, but you were talking no. about your first introduction to Bitcoin. So you're at the White House, then you left and you went to the DOJ. That's right. So I worked for the deputy attorney general, who's sort of a, a chief operating officer for the department report. So everything 
like technically reports through the deputy attorney general or the DAG to the attorney general. The deputy attorney general in many respects handles like day-to-day stuff. Attorney general is very White House facing, very sort of big picture thematic strategic stuff, but obviously those aren't siloed specifically. I joined when Rod Rosenstein was still there. Basically, Bill Barr came in and I was brought over and I started working for Rod Rosenstein, but he was cycling out and the new DAG, Jeff Rosen, came in from transportation. My And so I worked for Jeff and he had a front office and each some were councils, some were ADAGs, which was my title. And we did we had different slices of his overall pie of DOJ. And mine was the civil division, antitrust, environment, natural resources division, and tax. And so I work very closely with each of those divisions. Some of them have prosecutorial, like criminal justice roles. Some of them just have civil roles. And then my colleagues along up and down the corridor had like oversaw the FBI, oversaw ATF and the criminal division and on and on, DEA, on and on and on. The guy right next door to me, his name is Sujit Raman. He's now at, he'd be a cool guy for you to talk to. He's at TRM Labs now. He was the head of the, he was like the coordinator for all like cybersecurity and crypto issues. And it was under his leadership that they put out a report in late fall 2020 about crypto, which I read an early copy of and I was, and I complained to him that it said nothing good about crypto other than like one lonely sentence on the seventh page. And it is remarkable how DOJ's tune has evolved over the years. It's much more productive now, which is interesting. But that was, and I was, I was there all the way up into the, the bitter end. And then I resigned, took my family down to Florida for three weeks, didn't think about work or anything, got back up to the DC area. And I start, I had some conversations with some firms and then I finally realized like, what am, what am I doing? Like when I left, I worked at Sullivan and Cromwell, had a very good time there. I knew it really wasn't for me over like the long, long term, like decades of my life. So when I got out and I started talking to firms again, I just I realized that when I was having those conversations, like nothing about me was excited about them. Nothing. I was having to really sort of do this Jedi mind trick on myself to get myself excited about the prospect of having a normal litigator's practice in some subspecialty at a law firm. I remember, and uh, I was sitting on the couch one night reading an old Wired magazine article Uh, about the Silk Road. It was a republishing of a 2012 article about the Silk Road bust and everything like that. And it just occurred to me, it's like 1030 at night. I'm reading this long article because it really interests me. And they're talking a lot about the FBI and different law enforcement investigations and techniques and stuff that I'm familiar with. And then it just occurred to me, well, it's a really good time in the market. A lot of regulatory issues are coming up. And I, and part of my job at, at DOJ was in my areas, a lot of regulatory policy was discussed and DOJ weighs in on all new proposals and laws and programs and guidance to to give like the lawyers of the executive branch a real chance to weigh in on the various things that federal government wants to do. And it just sitting there, I'm like, what if, what if I start to dip a toe in the crypto ecosystem and see whether there's an opportunity there? And a couple of days later, I just sort of like commit to that. 
as being like the ecosystem, the path that I should try. And, um, I, I haven't looked back since. So, wow. And so in terms of joining consensus, then after mm-hmm. you, was your role defined when you started and what does your role in kind of made it up? You, yeah. Cause you say senior counsel, <laughs> yeah. director of global regulatory matters. So I can imagine that could vary from employment agreements to going to the white house yeah. and explaining what's happening. So yeah. could you define the scope of your role? Sure. There's a joke in government that the longer your title is, the less important you are. So, <laughs> so keep that in mind for whatever it's worth. I, one of the first, I like, I cold LinkedIn messaged a guy who works at Consensus and who used to work in the legal department and now does like actual product development work. He used to be at Sullivan and Cromwell and I didn't really know him, but I just cold LinkedIn. I'm like, hey, really interested in the space, want to network, do you have time to talk? Promptly responded back. Yeah, absolutely. We had a great conversation. This was like maybe a week or two after I decided to like dip my foot in. He immediately gets me in touch with Matt Korva, who is the OG general counsel of Consensus, has been with them since 2016 when they started, and who I, I can't imagine there being a crypto GC who's who has seen as much or experienced as much as much subject matter, practical legal or or industry specific expertise is Matt had a great conversation with him and then met the team over the course of several months. And, but during that time I was like talking to lots of people and I was trying to feel out like what you, what use could I be to any of you that I'm talking to? And it was clear in 2021 that a lot of people on money crypto wanted to get into the American market. And so they were looking for American lawyers to help them with that. There were the tech crypto side, like protocols and different apps and the like, we're getting a sense that financial regulatory scrutiny was increasing. And so they needed lawyers who understood the evolution of regulations, the regulatory process in DC could, could help them navigate sort of this nascent, but growingly palpable regulatory risk that they started to sense. And so to some people, I appear to be just like a regulatory affairs guy. Like somebody who could go in and like have conversations with regulators or lawmakers explaining what they did or being able to have a say in the development of regs or laws. But consensus really, Matt really needed a guy to help him and help the company navigate all of the changing regulatory landscape and assess what, if any, risks to the company, to users, to anybody our products and and services presented based on the current state of the laws and based on where the laws were going. I kind of, so in the end, like I wrote my own job description. I did, I'm like, I'm going to have a foot in both worlds. And I think, which makes my job incredibly fun and rewarding. I talk a lot with product people about what they're building and how it's built and who it's for and how we get users and all of the potential risks and hoops related to things we want to do. But I also get to participate in the broader policy discussions with regulators, with lawmakers, both here in the United States and around the world, and try to push the policy debates in in directions that I think are productive. And that includes writing and whether letters to Department of Treasury or, or op-eds and Coindesk. And I like 
having a foot in both worlds because I would not be a credible or useful communicator on policy issues if I didn't understand firsthand how a tech crypto company was looking at the space and what its future aspirations were and what regulations, what the implication regulations have for that. And I would not be a very good in-house counsel if I did not have a great sense by working with others in the industry about the implications of current regulations and where we are going in the future. So I can put our business folks in the best position to make the best decisions, both about where the opportunities are and where the risks are. So it, I bounce back and forth between the two sides of the job, and I'm sure I do each half as well as I could otherwise, but it certainly makes for a dynamic and fun job and the team here at Consensus, legal team especially, but the entire complement of people from Joe, our CEO, all the way down is just phenomenal. And I cannot believe I successfully conned my way into a tech job having no tech experience, but I did and things are going well. So no harm, no foul, but I feel very, very, very lucky. So. Yeah. Well, things, things always work out for the best. And on your point about dipping your feet into both buckets, and I think it, that almost makes you better at the other one rather mm -hmm. than doing a half-ass effort. It's more of this complements, they go hand in hand, and you can't actually do an A-plus effort in one if you don't have the other to fall back on or to learn from. Yeah, I. there's nothing approaching being perfect if you're a lawyer in crypto. There's And so you just got to I, I'm a little bit older and wiser than I was when I started out as a lawyer. And you'd start out as a lawyer at Sullivan and Cromwell and you think everything I have to do is perfect. That is the greatest lie you could ever tell yourself to make yourself utterly unproductive, to put a cap on your ceiling. Just convince yourself you have to be perfect at all times. Being in this job, it's you, you have to use first principles a lot. You have to riff. You have to make like best guesses. And you got to be candid about what you're doing and not self-conscious about it. And once you, once you realize that, it's so liberating and the job is fun. It's engaging. It's intellectually stimulating. I got in. I wanted to go in-house and not at some law firm. Some law firms talk to me like, oh, well, would you do this sort of regulatory advisory stuff for, at a law firm for crypto clients? And I said, well, yeah, I'd consider that. But I also knew that the game at a law firm is like you do what work is available and there was no way that I was going to learn the space the way I really wanted to and needed to without going in-house because I'd get to spend, what, max 25% of my time doing crypto if I was lucky. And I'd be working for one or two clients who have a very small pocket of crypto type work that they would want us to do. So I, consensus is on the front lines of tech crypto. Like it's, I cannot... I could not state how lucky I was to end up where I was at. I could not have done it better if I tried again. So I, I'm constantly aware of that in my day to day. And that's amazing. I know that's such an important feeling. And there's so many people that I know personally who I don't think would say the same thing in their current role. And to talk a bit about the money crypto versus tech crypto. Well, can I talk about that for a second? And I do want to talk about money. So my biggest, 
I'm very self-critical. My biggest criticism was that I never took the time to find a substantive area to be an expert on. Like you can be a generalist litigator and that's pretty darn easy to just scoot by being a generalist litigator. But if you don't know an area of the economy, some something that you can be an expert on, you're of very little utility. You're not special. There are a million litigators out there who can just litigate basically anything. That's a commodity. And so I, crypto's really been the first time I have taken a deep dive into a substantive area, like a substantive industry, a substantive ecosystem, and felt every day like if I'm not learning something new, then I'm wasting my time that day. And I just knew I wasn't going to be able to achieve that at a law firm. And so had in the fifth decade of my life, I'm not 50, that's your 40s for those of you <laughs> keeping track. I'm in my fifth decade. And this is the first time I've really tried to develop useful expertise in a space. And I can't say I'd do it differently because if I did it differently, I would be probably somewhere else and not here. But the I, anybody, if they're at a law firm job and they're wondering, oh, what next? Like, if you do not have marketable expertise in a particular space, you need to figure out how to get it pronto. And let's talk about that quickly, Bill, because yeah. I think it is an important one. And I know for me personally, when I was in law school, it was okay, if I want to be a great lawyer, I have to obviously have the table stakes legal skills, but mm. you have to have some expertise. And so for you approaching it with that mentality of, I want to build this expertise. And today with the internet, I think the cream rises to the top. It's so much easier to distinguish who the best in a particular field is. And so this doesn't necessarily only apply to crypto. It applies to mining, construction, real estate, etc. How did you think about building that expertise? Or if you were to look back, like what would you say to people who are at that stage or who are very interested mm -hmm. in crypto, want to build that expertise and are doing so, but could always use some guiding light to, yeah. to move towards. I'll try to answer it as briefly as possible, which is against character. It was just, I felt compelled to learn about it. And I think that's incredibly important. You can't make yourself care about something enough to be an expert in it. So this is why people who gravitate to things that they would naturally do if they didn't get paid for end up doing those things generally better than people who do it because they get a paycheck. So I, the reason why I have this job is because I was one of the few lawyers people can interview when they were trying to fill a position and I could speak the speak. Like I knew what joke they were laughing about on crypto Twitter that day. I knew the actual terms of art in crypto. I knew enough about how Bitcoin worked. I knew, and it, they would almost to a person recognize that during the interview. They would say, most of the interview, interviews I, I do, like the person does, doesn't even know what a miner is or something like that. They have no idea what mining is. And, and so the point is I built up this, it's very important that you find something that you want to learn because it's interesting. And if nobody, I know it's cliche to bring up Naval quotes, but he makes a very good point where he's like, you like something that you're interested in it. If learning about it and not being able to tell anyone about it or that you learned it doesn't dissuade you from learning it because it's just interesting to you. Mm -hmm. That's what crypto is to me. And so I, once I got into the job, I realized I, I knew nothing.
And so every day I technically get paid to learn this stuff more. So it's like a bonus. I could be doing it for free, sitting on my couch, have my wife take care of me financially, or I could be well-paid at a, at a great company, getting to do it, getting, getting to, to educate myself each and every day. And so you just gotta, you gotta find something you really like and have develop a skill set and a knowledge base that is useful to people who, whose problems you can solve and they'll pay you to solve them. And if you don't have that, good luck standing at the end of the line because it's going to be hard to get people's attention. Yeah. And I think too, the one thing I've learned just from conversations on this podcast is there's often this mistaken belief that you need to find your passion and you need to find something that you wake up every day and you want to do. And I think passion needs to be replaced with curiosity. It's something that you want to learn about because you're curious and your passion will develop as you're going through the learning process rather than like, I didn't wake up and say, I want to do crypto every day. I said, oh, crypto is interesting. How does it work? How does jurisdiction work with Bitcoin? And how could you get your tokens back? And then it snowballs from there. And then it becomes a passion after you've been in it for a couple months and you realize you didn't know anything before. And you probably still don't know anything because there's so much to learn. And you could literally spend years trying to grasp the technology itself, not to mention the legal areas around it. And so Mm -hmm. it it is, I think that's the way I try to frame it to people who are trying to find what they're interested in. It's, well, what are you curious about? What do you learn and enjoy learning about? And I think your quote there was great about you learn it and you won't tell it. You don't, you can't tell anyone. So you're just doing it for yourself. Yeah. I mean, I would describe it as your passion makes a lot of sense if there's a lot of opportunity in it. And it just became obvious to me when I left DOJ that it was the right time to give crypto a shot. And that it made a lot of sense for me because I knew DC, I knew how regulations were made. I knew how they applied. I'm not scared by the FBI because I've worked with them before. I have all these things which are real value adds to one of these companies that is now confronting all these problems. Plus I knew crypto, plus I'm really interested in learning more crypto. Like it all just lined up. Plus, number going up, so they all have money to actually be able to afford me. And so there's going to be opportunity here. And so I was passionate about it, but there was enough articulable future in it that it made sense for me just to jump off the boat without a life vest and start swimming, thinking that eventually I'm going to find land. And if I don't, then me and my family are going to drown. (laughs) So, but luckily I found land and we're all doing well. So yeah. And you have to look and see how far from land the boat could be or what's in the water, right? Oh no, I jumped off. I jumped off and I could not see land. It was a complete (laughs) leap of faith. I, I, and I was scared, right? I was a little concerned that I was going to rebrand myself as some crypto guy and it not work out. And then me have to crawl back and try to find a conventional job and explain a, six to 12 month period where I be, was a crazy crypto guy and it didn't work. Like I, I could see that as being a possible future. And I nonetheless said, well, it's still worth, it's still worth the stretch. Let's try. And who knows? It might still be the future. <laughs> it's, there's a non-zero. Ch- I feel pretty good. There's a non-zero chance. We have awkward job interviews in like 10 years. <laughs> 
Yeah, we'll we'll see. I read your article, and it was one of those articles that I'm sure you you share this feeling. Sometimes you read something and you think, "Oh, that's what I was thinking," but I never said it, never mm-hmm. put it into words. I didn't know how to articulate it. And for me, it was a great example of there seemed to be that dichotomy between tons of funding coming in, but then builders that I know who didn't really care for all that, and it was more just we need to build things yeah. to move this forward. And so I'll link Money Crypto versus Tech Crypto in the show notes so people can read the full article. But could you give the brief, what is Money Crypto in terms of your definition? What is Tech Crypto? And then we can yeah. talk a bit more about the article. Yeah, Money Crypto is that part of the space which is very much focused on treating digital tokens as investable assets. Tech Crypto is the side of the space that is basically building these ecosystems. They're building the base layer protocols, they're building the tools, they're building the smart contracts, they're building front ends. They're making these things usable ecosystems. These are not obviously completely distinct ecosystems. They overlap very much. But money crypto is generally, its most prominent feature is CFI, like intermediaries that really act like intermediary financial institutions in TradFi like exchanges, brokers, hedge funds, the like. Whereas tech crypto, you can you basically have software development and it's people trying to write new code to create new software offerings that are either on-chain or off-chain. And it, yeah, to your point, when did I write it? I wrote it... Wrote or published? I, I th- no, I wrote it two weeks ago. Okay. I, had the, I had this sort of... This it, this idea crept into my mind, and then I really couldn't shake it. And I felt, and I had to like write this other letter to the treasury, and that was an actual thing I had told myself I'm doing this because it's kind of my job. This article is not my job. I mean, it's part of my job, but it's not like an actual thing on my to do list. It just popped in my head, and I had to write that first because I was so convinced that if I stopped thinking about it, then I'd forget it, and I wouldn't be able to return to it and have cogent thoughts about it. So I actually wrote it in one day, sort of sat on it, revised it a little, pass it around, didn't get much comments back. And then on Monday of this week, I sent it in the Coindesk, uh, an editor I know there. And he's like, cool, this is great. I may have some comments on it. I'll get back to you. And the next thing you know, like I hadn't heard from him, like that night he published. It. <laughs> I was like, oh, I hope it was okay. But, and then the next morning the FTX stuff happened and I've gotten a lot of feedback on it simply because it was like at the top of the front page, right as everyone's going to Coindesk right. to like read about what's happening about FTX. But that's ba- the basic dichotomy about money crypto. And the reason why I make that dichotomy is not because... I think it's important. I love having useful mental models. Like you need, the world is hopelessly complex. And if you don't simplify it, if you don't, the law is hopelessly complex. If you don't simplify it, there's no way for you to go day to day and be able to make decisions or recognize issues and you'll just be paralyzed. So I just think it's helpful to sort of keep these two different parts of the space in mind because from a regulatory perspective, it really does explain a lot about what I'm observing when we talk about regulations today, when organizations like the Blockchain Association have all their members come together, some are in tech crypto, some are in money crypto. Like the way legislators and regulators talk about it, they generally are talking about one or the other. And the big problems come is when both are considered one and the same. Because generally, in that instance, you have regulations, you have risks that money crypto 
presents and regulations designed to address those. And they look very much like traditional finance regulations. And then because it's one and the same, you sort of arm wrestle tech crypto in and say, well, tech crypto, you need to apply. These apply to you too. And if we just sort of, if our framing is these are different things, and because they're different things, they present different risks, and those different risks may need to be mitigated and avoided different through different mechanisms, including regulation, then we wouldn't start, we, we wouldn't be risking the fatal flaw of taking traditional finance regulations and trying to cram them on top of tech crypto, which I think is the cardinal sin. And it's easy to be sympathetic to the regulators and see where they're coming from when it does the same terminology is used. You hear crypto, crypto, you just think it's all yeah. one, one pie. And not only do they have crypto, they have so much else on their plate as well. Like you highlighted the SEC and you made a great point. You're saying if there's no gap between money, crypto and tech crypto, then regulators like the SEC have a rhetorical basis to prescribe the same regulatory solution across spaces. And in my mind, what instantly popped in was, okay, well, how do we create this gap? What can we do to better emphasize the Mm -hmm. difference between CFI or TradFi that uses crypto and that might seem like it's crypto related? Like to me, a crypto ETF has nothing to do with crypto, just like a mining ETF has nothing to do with mining. And so how do you think we can either better explain that gap or emphasize the gap or what can we do to make sure that gap is more present in regulators minds so we don't get regulation that is harmful for the tech crypto side that was intended primarily for money crypto mm-hmm. i think there's probably lots of things i think as a general matter we can just be more specific in our language and be more disciplined in how we talk about these things i think we can be and I could give examples of words that we end up using that conflate things. <laughs> like calling staking rewards yield is an abomination. You Anybody doing that now needs to stop because it's not yield. You're getting a reward from the protocol for performing a service which adds to the security of the network. Yield is generally associated with financial products where you lend money and they pay you for lending the money. That is almost always a regulated transaction. Staking ETH should be treated differently because its function is different and what is actually happening is different. So to go to what specifically we should do, we should be more specific about what is actually happening in the crypto space, in the tech crypto space, which is hard because some of it's technical and you got to sort of reduce it down to its essence to be accurate, but also coherent to somebody who doesn't really understand this stuff to make it clear that what's happening on chain is fundamentally different than anything that it kind of replicates in TradFi. There is this, what's the phrase, same activity, same risk, same regulation. I recognize this is to some degree a semantic quibble, but I don't, I think I'd use function rather than activity because I can, when I think of activity, I could think like lending, lending is an activity. The way lending works in TradFi and lending works in, you both, you have lending in TradFi and you have lending in DeFi. And so a 
casual observer would say, well, you have lending in both spaces. Lending has certain risks. You need to have the same rules and regulations for each to be fair. But the fundamental problem with that is the actual mechanics of the lending in TradFi is fundamentally different than the actual mechanics of quote-unquote lending in DeFi. In DeFi, it's a smart contract, which is essentially the counterparty to the lender, and it's that same smart contract or a different aspect of it is the counterparty for the borrower. Like the borrower and lender actually don't, in, in a way of thinking, they're not actually counterparties of each other. It's really just individuals performing different functions with a single smart contract, but they're different functions. And so if it is the functionality which introduces the risk, like is a smart contract buggy? Is it malicious? Do the users actually have the ability to like maintain control of the tokens after they take them off? Like all of these are risks attendant to operating in DeFi, but it's the function of the mechanism in DeFi which is different. And I don't think we're good enough in explaining that in ways that are simple to under, are sort of intuitive. And I don't think we're good right now on emphasizing that these differences are meaningful and that they should impact the way we think about regulation and the way we think about other ways to mitigate risk, like say, for example, like through technological innovation. And I also think DeFi and people who talk about the tech crypto space need to be a lot more candid with where the tech is and what the problems with it are. If everything is just unicorns and rainbows, then you try to block any meaningful conversation about what regulation could be in the on-chain or chain-adjacent space when you pretend like there are no risks, when there are no problems, when there are big risks and problems. But they're early days. Those don't give me anxiety. Like, we'll figure it out. Regulation is going to be part of the answer. But you know, that's a long, messy laundry list of things that I think we could do better. Yeah, But it's it starts with people recognizing fundamentally some people in the regulatory debate really want the pool of investors to grow. That's it. That's their goal. Regulation is great for that because it increases the aperture to let more people come in and buy tokens. That's what they want because they're selling or they're making markets and that's how they make their money. On the tech side... They want a lot of ability to venture out in the white space. And some of that venturing is very risky and could get people hurt. Some of it is going to be completely dumb and a waste of capital and time. Some of it's going to be really cool and probably create a lot of useful stuff that helps a lot of people. A lot of those people probably need a lot of help. And this is the one thing that could do it. So let's experiment with it and build on it. That's the kind, and that is like the vision of what, tech crypto wants to do when it comes to like making the world a better place. And this is where like the chilling effect of regulation, I think that point carries its most force. Like no one, you're not the average intermediary exchange isn't the cutting edge of innovation. Regulation is not going to somehow make the world a less good place because you're regulating a, a custodial exchange. I mean, KYC has its problems and everything, but the real problem is with tech crypto. And so we can, by, by distinguishing these things, regulators and lawmakers can be like, I understand. And they also see the opportunity to regulate now versus the opportunity to wait and let things mature and regulate later. Yeah, there, there's a few points on that and a few different 
paths we can go. One thing when it comes to calling something like staking yield is it's that low-hanging fruit that makes it easy for regulators to understand. It's, oh, you Mm -hmm. lock up your tokens. They're used to verify the protocol like interest payments from a bank. And it's just Mm -hmm. that so tempting to speak their language. And then they think, okay, well, that's how it works. It's interest payments on a loan or on some asset that's parked with them. So that's, that's the difficulty, I think, because it's so much easier to reason by analogy and to give examples yeah. using analogies that you have to balance that you have to balance that it's like that but and then caveat yeah. that with the analogies of- have to be right the wrong analogies yeah. are end up with really bad reg- regulations and so the and that's what we've been struggling with as well like we have to figure out if we're going to try to reference something to help explain this stuff we got to make sure that reference is as accurate as possible. And it's hard. These things aren't easy. Agreed. And that's a big policy challenge facing crypto. But there are others too. And would you say, what would you say is the biggest policy challenge that crypto faces in the near future that we'll need to deal with in order to move this space forward? Everybody really focuses on the investor protection elements, but I actually think that's secondary to the issue of illicit finance, right? And cybercrime. Right now with these permissionless blockchains, both good actors and bad actors can access the ecosystem, use the ecosystem. And the bad actors, some of them are very much preying on the good actors. So there's lots of hacks, there's lots of phishing, and the, this is a sort of a big philosophical problem as well as a technical problem. People in the, in the United States and in allied countries are going to have to come to some resolution regarding, and we're already starting to wrestle with these issues. If North Korean hackers can ride roughshod over DeFi and plague protocols, plague users of the protocols, and there's nothing really we can do to stop it, that's a big problem because it's not like most people, let alone the government, is going to just shrug their, they're just going to shrug their shoulders and say, well, I guess there's nothing we can do. We're just going to live with it. They will absolutely not do that. So if this is going to be a rich, vibrant ecosystem that everyone plays in, like it can't be a risk-free hunting ground for cyber criminals. And what to do about that is a very difficult problem. But that is very much what Treasury is worried about right now. That is very much what law enforcement is worried about. That is very much something that foreign governments are worried about. So it's going to take... It's going to take, and I don't know really what to do about it. So it's going to take a lot of thought. It will. And you wrote a comment letter recently to the U.S. Treasury where you highlighted development to make crypto easier and safer to use. And things like that will go a long way because these people are busy and 
they, unless it's explained to them, it's hard for them to spend their nights and weekends interest or searching for something they may not particularly be that passionate or curious about. So in this, you spoke about the development is focused on the risk associated with private keys. Could mm-hmm. you just expand a bit uh, on the peril of private keys? Sure. And I will say about like, there's generally at least one or two people in each of these agencies who like really, really loves crypto. And that number is growing. But you'll get on these you'll get on these calls with these agencies or these sort of subunits within agencies, and you'll see in the background of the Zoom that this official or this law enforcement guy has like a poster of like the white Satoshi white paper like on the wall <laughs> or something. So these guys love crypto and they just have jobs, and part of their job is to like reduce risk through implementation of public policy via regulations or laws or whatnot. The comment that we just submitted to Treasury makes the point that there are risks attendant to the peer-to-peer ecosystem and that not all of these risks need to be addressed through regulation. In fact, there are going to be tech solutions to many of these things and that these things are things that the ecosystem cares about fixing. And the example is with cybercrime, with phishing, with malicious smart contracts, with compromised front ends, um, all of these prey on a defining feature of the ecosystem of, and that is the public-private key pair, which forms the basis that you can sign and send and receive messages. And these messages obviously include sort of because it's crypto, actual monetary transactions. And because a private key is essentially the same as your wallet. And if you lose your private key or your private key gets stolen, like it's essentially your wallet's stolen, like that's a, that fundamental construct is the source of a lot of problems. And one of my colleagues, she was the founder of MyCrypto and she recently, she and her team were recently acquired and joined the MetaMask team. Taylor Monaghan, who was like just a rock star OG, she makes, she did a very provocative speech at DevCon down in Bogota where she was just saying, guys, we got to do better. Private keys are a nightmare. We're like, we have to fix this. And so I, there, there are risks attendant to a peer-to-peer system and there are ways the tech can evolve to mitigate those risks and make users safer. And account abstraction is one concept that people are thinking about and trying to develop further. Vitalik has put out articles about social recovery, which is an element of account abstraction. And the basis of account abstraction is essentially every wallet would have, would become sort of like a smart wallet. It would have smart contract programmability built into that type of account, which it currently it doesn't have. And as a result, you could, you could improve or at the very least change the security features of your wallet to make it more resilient against attacks to deter attacks and the like. So I wanted to flag giving a specific example, which treasury did not otherwise, which I did not presume treasury was otherwise aware of. I wanted to flag like a real nuts and bolts issue as an example of the way the peer to peer system will naturally evolve due to the incentives of the people building it to want to improve it. 
And the message is there are going to be some things which are a shame now and a calamity, no doubt, but it doesn't, not everything needs to be solved by regulation and not everything needs to be solved through a law enforcement response. The the counterpunch to that is, well, how long are these changes going to take? And I can't tell you. It's not like account abstraction is, there's consensus around it and there's not like, it's very high on the to-do list. I think it's getting higher. There are layer twos and other non-Ethereum based chain efforts like Argent and there's one other that's skipping my that I'm not thinking of right now. That that are it's really like what they're trying to build. And so there there are ways to make it safer, maybe on on layer twos, but that's the concept. And I think our advocacy, when I advocate like that, I I think that's what we should be doing. I think we should be getting more specific and being more constructive and being more candid about the risks and being candid about what we alone can do about them from a development and a tech standpoint. I think reciting the same old tired lines about regulatory clarity and this, that, or the other is, I don't understand how that helps anything. I really don't. I, and sort of dismissing dismissing illicit finance and cybercrime and all the stuff as being, well, it's still such a small percentage of the activity. Most of it is illicit. And it's it, it, essentially that's a what about argument, which fine, okay, impacts how urgent it is. But it can't also be your point that we shouldn't need to do anything about these risks. And so I think a lot of the policy arguments now and the rhetoric is kind of a dodge. And it's very superficial. And I get the sense that, so I don't like to, I try to be better than that. And I don't know how successful I am, but I do get the sense that the ecosystem more broadly, the they're upping their advocacy game because they are getting more substantive. Yeah. And there's so many smart people in the space that one approach that doesn't work over time will be changed and people will recognize that there are better ways to do it. Maybe we have to hand them the regulation on a platter. Maybe we work with them to move a bill forward. And I think as as long as that balance between money crypto and tech crypto is kept in check and the gap is mm-hmm. highlighted, things should move in the right direction. And it's comforting to hear you mention earlier that we were moving in the right direction. But also, if you put yourself in the shoes of a regulator and you think, okay, my job is to protect these people, I can understand why they'd want to take some approaches that they have taken, largely because of that lack of education in some cases. And that's where lobbying and advocacy, I think, will play a massive role in the coming couple of years, especially to explain that gap between this is what tech crypto enables, this Mm -hmm. is sort of where money crypto has been and has gone. Yeah. I So internally in our, my discussions with my colleagues, we've resolved to start to call these questions and have these discussions about the risks attendant to a peer-to-peer space and how from a public policy perspective, we should think about them and what we should do about them and whether they can be mitigated. It is a multi-year conversation at the least. And uh, say, for example, Mika isn't going to go into effect and until latter half of 2024 for most of it. Europe hasn't even begun the conversations about 
like the peer-to-peer space, DeFi foremost amongst it. We're, we are engaged, we're getting more and more engaged in Europe to start calling these questions and having these conversations to start not only distinguishing peer-to-peer from like the centralized finance crypto, but also ensuring that when we actually have to have substantive discussions about regulatory frameworks, if any, for the peer-to-peer space, that we've talked to as many people as possible and gave it our honest effort to put them in the right frame of mind to think about these questions. So they're not just picking it up cold when they're pressed to put forth an answer. So great advocates like Mark, who Byron, who just joined Paradigm, Rebecca Reddig at Ave, and there are plenty others, but They've been doing the Lord's work for a while now. I'm trying to chip in as I can. and Because fundamentally, if it is indeed our mission at Consensus to support, to, to build, to help build a thriving and vibrant peer-to-peer ecosystem, a new world computer that everybody can trust and use and develop on top of, like it is so important to, to that mission to ensure that the real world regulatory construct in which it in which this system operates is as well designed and as productive as possible and is as focused and as helpful as best it can be in reducing risks that this peer to peer space we know already exists and will certainly manifest over time and so with that in mind i know you're doing a tremendous amount of work at Consensus and building out Infura, building out MetaMask and various other software projects. And I typically ask people what projects they're most excited for in the crypto NFT DAO space. But is there anything in particular at Consensus that you're hoping to see built out or you're looking forward to seeing built? I am very excited about the future of MetaMask. The vision is that this peer-to-peer programmable space, this new data structure for the internet is going to pervade everything we do in our digital lives. And you're going to need a passport. You're going to need a front end for that. And MetaMask, and and there may be many front ends, maybe for different purposes or just because there's lots of different options and people like their own flavor of ice cream, but what MetaMask is, what the MetaMask team and the Meta, bigger MetaMask community is doing is like really exciting in terms of making it really useful cross-chain, cross-token wallet that just works with all the apps that is open source that you can, you can build on top of. And we do lots of stuff, but I think our big flag flagship offering is MetaMask, and that's probably never going to change. And this last bull run, we had what thirty million monthly average users. That's only going to go up as the ecosystem expands. And if MetaMask is really successful, then people will actually have a really good option to take a lot more control over the their data, their their funds, their lives online. That's the goal, at least. And ultimately, it's also the goal of MetaMask to not just be a consensus thing. I think Joe tweeted out today that Infura, which are nodes, 
and MetaMask. Like the ultimate goal is to make these things as decentralized as possible. How precisely that happens, it's going to take some experimentation, but the goal of consensus is not to be a Google, right? It's to, it's to usher in an era where that's no longer really feasible. The really cool thing with MetaMask too is this new MetaMask snaps feature where people can build apps and functionality and you, and, and that can be offered and accessible by anyone to like upgrade their MetaMask, MetaMask wallet and with new functionality. So the idea being that anybody could create any sort of new aspect of the wallet and just offer that code out and you could just snap it right into your MetaMask user interface and use it, which would proliferate. It's not just like a hand, it's not just one company building it. It would be anybody who cared to develop it. And so it's kind of hokey to think about it. And I'm sure somebody could point out all the reasons why it, it isn't completely true, but we, I've loved consensus in in no small part because the folks who work here and have been here for a while really do try to walk the walk and stand behind these notions that what we want to build is not something that we ultimately want to end up controlling. We want to build something that ultimately liberates people rather than benefits only us. So MetaMask would be my answer. Yeah. No, that's interesting to hear, Bill. Why do you think that the team at consensus is willing to take that approach where you think of it from a commercial enterprise perspective, decentralization might not be the most profitable mechanism to, to aim towards. Why, like, why move towards decentralization? Because we're all weird crypto guys, right? And the normal incentive structure isn't as appealing as, I don't know, the skyward yearning idealism of folks who really take decentralization and changing the paradigm seriously. I what we're going to what we're going to try to do is create a successful company and products that can be freely available and usable and accessible and improvable on a decentralized basis. We're going to try to do both. And we're going to I'm sure feel our way through the dark through a lot of it and but there are ways to improve metamask to be able to run a successful company that that leverages that tool and other aspects that of the ecosystem which MetaMask opens up for us, while also keeping like the fundamentals, the fundamental tools, the fundamental infrastructure as diversified and as decentralized as possible. So, you know, what it's the direction we're going and it's, who knows how long it takes to walk there, but we'll be walking. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. And I think it is such an important thing to underscore. All There's so many benefits to decentralization. Obviously, it's such a buzzword these days, but it's, I mean, it's happened in multiple situations and we can just see the benefits with something like what happened with the recent crypto collapse of centralized exchange, where mm -hmm. there was the checks and balances were held by a handful, at least reportedly a handful of people and the dangers of that system. And we've seen in dictatorships around the world of the mm -hmm. dangers of a system where there really isn't accountability to others and certain actors have more power than others. And human greed is a pretty powerful thing. Yeah. I mean, and I'm, look, I'm not some like wide-eyed optimist about decentralization. Like I have, I think there are probably some systems, some functions that decentralization makes zero sense for. 
And there are some concepts of decentralization. I might think like, well, how the heck is that even possible or, or desirable? Let alone possible. But yeah, there. if this stuff is actually a new invention that has never existed before, this ability to coordinate and the activity of people who don't know each other and get them to cooperate when they have no reason to through these networks, if it is given all the problems with a centralized trust structure, it just makes so much sense to me that we try our darndest to experiment with this new space and see if we can create things which make things meaningfully better in big ways or small ways. And these projects, these companies that are trying to do that, I think are sort of in some sense doing a great social good. And as long as we do it responsibly and being self-effacing about risks and the, I think we're, we'll do so in a way that we can be proud about. Yeah, absolutely. And one question I always like to end with, Bill, and mm -hmm. thanks so much for being so generous with your time. I've really enjoyed this. It's cool to, I mean, just your career in general is fascinating to hear, <laughs> but I, all the things we spoke about are really interesting and really important to me and I'm sure everyone listening as well. And it's great to hear from someone like you who's been in the room, so to speak, in, in multiple of these areas. So the last thing I wanted to touch on was habits and advice. And these these are things that have helped shape careers. I know I've learned a ton from lawyers who have been through the ringer, from people who maybe have developed habits early on. But are there any particular things, habits, or advice that have helped you cultivate a successful career? I think the sad answer to that is no. And maybe that's the problem. <laughs> and I, you get to the point where I'm at now and you realize that and you go, oh my God, what a shame. I, I don't know about that. I don't well, believe it. I'm well, sure there's I, some. I can't think of a single piece of advice that I got that really sticks out of my head. And I think that is more to the point that I never really sought it out, which was dumb. I should have. And the first thing I should have done is find a space that really interested me and then find a mentor in it and then either explicitly or implicitly take that person on as somebody who I could try to like mimic and emulate and learn from. Because in that instance, you're going to get all sorts of advice, explicit advice or implicit sort of lessons that will really help you. And you won't have to remake the wheel. You can leverage what that person teaches you. So you find someone who you believe is admirable, that you'd like to act more like and think more like, and you start copying them. And you got to do it, again, directed at a particular subject matter space, which really excites you. So it captures your imagination. You think about it when you don't need to think about it. And you can, and it, it energizes you. So you really should find a mentor. And it doesn't need to be a flesh and blood person. You, you risk going way off the well-trodden path if you do this, but you could, there, there's plenty of content on podcasts, on YouTube, people who put themselves out there who can explain issues to you, show you how they think, how they argue, how they puzzle about things, how they sort of act among peers and in sort of adversarial settings. And if you just observe those people enough, if you listen to them enough, you, it's shocking how much you can learn about a particular subject and how much you can learn about how to conduct yourself, how to think, how to speak. And so I'd commend any of your listeners to do just that, to 
find somebody who you could see yourself emulating and that you enjoy the process of learning to emulate them. And then, like I said earlier, the other piece of advice would be become a subject matter expert in something. And if you can't find the thing that you're destined to be an expert in when you're 20, just pick something that it seems the closest and try it until it utterly exhausts you and you can't stand it anymore. And then try to pick something else. But you have to be aiming at something substantive and developing expertise in it. And that thing really should be something that there's a future in. There's utility. Your expertise has utility. And if you do that, whether you're a lawyer or you're in policy or you're developed, like whatever you're doing, you're going to enjoy expressing that expertise, implementing that expertise. You're going to feel good about the fact that you're useful for something. You're probably going to be employable. And everything else is going to work out as long as you're just understand that fundamental that that box has to be checked otherwise it you're just you're a commodity to a large degree which i was for a long stretch yeah. trying to fix that now trying to fix that now i think you're in a good good spot to do that bill and i i think that's a great way to think of it is find an area that you're particularly curious and interested in and you find if you find someone who is ahead in that area further along than you are, that's a great litmus test in do I want their life? Do I want to be doing the day-to-day things that they are doing? And if so, well, now you take them on either as a a more formal or even informal mentor or just a quasi-mentor or it's someone you learn from without necessarily having to, with given Twitter and social media and how many people are doing podcasts and writing these days, there are so many ways to learn from smart people indirectly. Yeah, I think that I think that's I think that's pretty much right. I think that's pretty much yeah. right. And and once and once you find it, there's not going to be that that clenched anxiety that you've right around your solar plexus. That I'm sure there are lots of law firm associates who listen to your podcast, and as well they should. And that there you sort of get numb to this sense of anxiety, not just that the day to day something's going to screw up, but that anxiety that you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing and that you need to change and you don't really know how and you're scared to it the unknown is terrifying and part and parcel with all of that is just being candid with yourself about and being enforcing yourself to really prioritize your future and where you want to head and if you feel like you're not moving in the direction that you want to move in promising to yourself that you're going to take small but important steps to start to course correct because you don't like the years you waste when you're young are a catastrophe you can waste years when you're 60 you can't waste them when you're 20 in your 20s and 30s so don't get complacent don't put your head in the sand you got to be aiming right and if you're not you'll just end up like me you'll work it out eventually but so don't get completely despondent (laughs) but you'll really be much happier and much that that sort of existential anxiety Mm -hmm. will be gone once you start taking steps toward things that feel right and so that's what you should really focus on as well amazing bill i think that's a great spot to end it thank you so much for joining me today everyone can reach out to find bill on twitter at bill hughes dc 
and reach out to him there. I will link everything we discussed in the show notes below. But Bill, I just wanted to thanks for thank you for joining me for the candid conversation and for all the work that you and Consensus are doing to move the space forward. I enjoyed myself immensely. I was flattered to be asked. You have an illustrious list of guests. I hope I don't bring down your average too much. And <laughs> I look forward to the next opportunity we get to talk. Thank you, sir.